SFDC Consultant is here to support your sales career through interviews, podcasts, videos, and articles about and around the best way to grow and develop as a sales professional. I have a list of high value and highly packed sales podcast episodes with sales MVP guests, Salesforce architects, consultants, directors, developers, and administrators. Continuing on a similar topic of starting a business within the Salesforce ecosystem as some of the latest podcast episodes, today I am speaking with Paul Harris, founder and CEO of Coacto, which is a UK-based Salesforce consultancy. I was looking forward to share this conversation as on top of the advice that Paul has shared, he also has an interesting and resonating story about how he was able to work with offshore partners to support the start and the growth of his consultancy. And now, enjoy my conversation with Paul Harris. I'm, I'm Paul Harris from Coacto. I'm the founder and owner of the company we set up in uh, in 2016. But there's, there's a little bit of a journey that got me to that point. I um, started out as a developer years and years ago, longer than I care to remember, in fact. But I was first introduced to Salesforce, I think back in 2002. So I've been working in the ecosystem quite some time and at that stage away from uh, coding and developing software to selling it ultimately I, I took a few hops through pre-sales and, and various other roles to get to being a channel manager or a channel director for an American software company and they heard about this great technology on the west coast and the sales director said yeah we've got to have this Salesforce product it looks amazing and you know the rollout was here's your license here's your login Okay, and next week I want you know, all of your reports from Salesforce. I want everything just documented so I, I can get access to it. And given I had that software development background, I was able to sort of take that fairly embryonic platform as it was back in 2002. I mean, it's changed unbelievably over the intervening years. But I took that platform and managing all the international uh, channels. So I basically had the world minus America minus the UK. So that's sort of South America, Asia, Europe, Australia. So I had a lot of people to, to deal with. And I configured the system to allow me to create the relationships and, and capture those relationships, capture the information I needed to manage and track what I did. And I found it hugely liberating to be able to put all this information in one place, to link it together, and to find a tool that really helped me doing my job. And so you know, my first introduction to it was, was as a user. And, and there's somebody that then had to provide information you know, to the uh, directors of the business about my performance, the performance of my channels, and, and so on. So that was a really engaging experience. And I'd had hankerings to set up my own business for, you know, for a while. And, and as luck would have it, um, I crossed paths with somebody I worked with, and, and, and they said, oh, I've got this great idea. We're going to start a business. We're going to do this. I said, okay. So I left my software job to start um, a new company. And one of the key things that I brought with me was Salesforce, this idea that we could create a central place for managing the core business processes and the core data of the business and, and we ran that company for about seven or eight years we got to probably six or seven million uh, pounds in size and we did some really innovative things with the platform at that stage and you know, we used it to manage all of our customers to distribute documents to manage registrations we integrated it with mid-office systems and back office systems we did a lot of stuff looking back and some of it was very challenging because those kind of concepts didn't really exist as core parts of the platform but when that business was, was running me and rather than me running it, I, I stepped away from that and thought, you know, I really need to explore this great idea of, of, of becoming a Salesforce consultant. Because I thought, I understand technology. I understand commercials. You know, I really like working and engaging with people. I've probably got some of the qualities to become a consultant. So I set out as an independent 
back in 2011 and, and struck out you know, as many people do and you know, found my first customers you know worked on on, on some projects and, you know, and one of my very first projects was it was a project where at least two consultancies had been in there previously and they'd made a right old hash of this org I mean I'd never seen an org since in such a mess as, as this particular org they had written workflows in apex and they'd done all sorts of stuff that just isn't best practice so i had to sort of pivot around that system i couldn't start from scratch because there wasn't enough time and i was on my own at that stage and so i just managed to really gain the trust of of the of the directors and said look i understand your problem i understand your pain i can visualize what you need mapped out how i was going to do it and then they they let me loose for for two or three months while i you know reconfigured the system whilst they were using the system to manage all of these events and, and, and weddings bookings and I really got a taste for uh, the Salesforce uh, consulting world and, and felt that you know, this was probably going to be my vocation. And I worked for a few customers, indeed also a few consultancies, you know, who then tried to hire me. And eventually I was seduced to go perm for, for one of these uh, companies. And uh, it was great. I had a great learning experience there working alongside other people. Because when you're on your own, it's a very different experience to working with others. And I think that really sowed the seeds for me working you know, in a consultancy rather than working as an individual. That company was then acquired. You know, the experience changed because they weren't a Salesforce consultancy. They were a managed services provider. And ultimately, they decided to move away from Salesforce, at which point I think I had all of the, the tools in my kit bag. And then I kind of decided I was going to set up on my own. So the idea of Coacto was born early in 2016 when I thought, right, I've got everything I need now. I've got the understanding from a technical perspective, from a commercial perspective, I understand how consultancies operate. I want to create my own consultancy so that I can set the tone for the direction of the company, the projects we engage with, the technology we use. I can also create the right kind of you know, engaging culture and really push the business forward in a way that aligns with my values and my goals, but also that aligns with the ecosystem's values and, and, and goals and objectives. And that's what I did. And, and, you know, we celebrated our fourth birthday just uh, just a week or so ago. And, um, you know, it feels really good. It feels really positive. I think I made I made the right choice. And I've met, met some great people along the way and learned a ton of stuff as well. What was the, the action log of your first two months whenever starting that? If we take the legal piece out of it, you registered the company, all that, you, you always not, need to do that. But what, what is it in terms of the relationships that you've built along the way? Was that kind of your first point of contact in terms of trying to get that message out? What was your plan around that? That's a great question, uh, Emery. Yeah, I think I was very lucky um, with the experience that I had that enabled me to start Coacto. Um, Coacto was probably my third or fourth business that I'd started. So my, my first company where I got, got to use Salesforce as the operational hub of the business really gave me a sense of you know, starting, building organizations, employing people, putting in place the right kind of structures and, and the right kind of cultures. And then... My experience working with a couple of consultancies gave me the understanding of that space. And, and really, I, I could bring those two together. So I didn't have any fear about starting a company because I know for a lot of people that, that continue to operate as independents or contractors or freelancers, it's really the fear of being able to do that and to do it right. It's the fear of failure. So I, I didn't have any of that. I had a, a really strong sort of launch pad to say, yeah, I think I can put all of that in place. Because you know, the last consultancy that I worked for had decided to move away from the Salesforce space because it wasn't core uh, business to them, when they made that decision, they, they made their dis- that decision you know, to let me go from the business along with, you know, with some other people. But I said, 
what about all those customers? I've worked with you now for you know, 18 months or so, and I've got some great relationships you know, with, these, with these customers. You know, they, they like working with us and, and, and me particularly. What are you going to do about that? And they hadn't thought about how they were going to manage that customer transition. So, well, you can't just turn these people off. So I said, well, look, I'm happy to move on. I don't have, a, have an issue with, with moving on. And in fact, I was ready to move on anyway, I think, given some of the, the challenges I'd had within that organization. And so I said, well, look, let's negotiate where I can take all of those customers from you. So that solves a whole bunch of problems. You don't have to speak to them other than saying, Paul's now going to be taking this over. And so as, as part of that transition out of that organization into Coacto, my action log, as you refer to it, was really to manage the transition of those customers from one organization to another organization. So it wasn't a jump start. I wasn't starting from cold. I had um, a really good set of, of, of uh, customers that I'd worked with. I even had a couple of projects that were ongoing. And in particular, there was one very, very large project with a, a blue chip pharmacy company that I'd been discussing a potential implementation with. And, and you know, that project was three to 400 days, if I recall. So you know, to, to have that kind of opportunity when you're just starting out is, is tremendous because, yes, you're taking that leap of faith and you're thinking, well, can I really, as a new company, deliver a big project that would typically involve a platinum partner within the confines of a new consultancy? But at that stage, was just me. So in the very early weeks of Coacto, I had to put in place an infrastructure that enabled me to support the customers that I was bringing with me plus the prospect of starting this new, very, very large project. Because they've made it very clear that they'd bought into me and they had really appreciated the investment that I'd made with them in understanding their business, understanding their challenges, but also trying to give them an outline solution to their problems that gave them the confidence to say, well, yeah, we know we should be going probably with a platinum partner, but actually you understand us, you know, we like you, You've got the understanding in this particular space. We're going to go with you. And that, that you, you talked about that, that moment where you feel really proud about looking back. I and mean, I feel really proud about being able to have managed that, that process. But really importantly about the fact that somebody trusted me to do that. You know, this was a, this was a line of business critical system that um, managed um, the drug procurement for a major pharmacy company. And I was, I was, yeah, you know, a little twitchy occasionally thinking, can I do this? Can I really do this? Can I get the right team to do this? But then I realized that, you know, sometimes you just have to grasp the nettle and you have to put your fears behind you. You have to mitigate for those fears and mitigate for any things that, that might throw you off course. But, you know, if you're not in that zone where you've, you've got some kind of butterflies or some kind of fear, then you're not pushing yourself. You're not learning you're not growing um, in a way maybe that you, know, you might need to. And, and it's not for everybody putting themselves in that kind of situation. So the first two months, and I had another, another customer as well that was, you know, it was a probably a 50-day project. And so I had these two huge opportunities as well as a warm customer base. So my actions around that were really trying to, how can I put this infrastructure in place to support that and manage that and grow that and be successful, but ultimately make sure that there's enough revenue coming in to pay everybody that's going to be working on this and also to pay myself so that, you know, I can keep a roof over my head. So you're dealing with lots of different things. It's not just about the business. It's about your personal success. It's about the success of your family that's around you. And it's also about your reputation. And so I felt like a juggler. I had lots of balls in the air at one time. And there were times when I didn't know how I was going to move forward, but I trusted in my instinct and I did enough planning and thinking to make sure that, 
at the very least, I had a plan. It may not have been the right plan at the time, but it was a plan that I could then modify and adapt. And at the peak of that pharmacy project, we had around you know 15 people working through the company. So within probably six months, I had 15 people that I was responsible for to deliver that project. And that that was just a tremendous feeling. But it was also, I had a great sense of gratitude for being able to be in the situation where I started a consultancy with that project, with that existing customer base, because uh, that gave me a great start to, to, to building and growing Coacto over the next next four years. That, that makes sense. And and you did mention a few things there, which I will have to follow up on. I think there are some brilliant points in there. The idea of using your existing network or your existing situation as an advantage is, of course, the, the way to go. Either stick into the same products or platform that you've used before in case you've implemented app exchange products, or, or of course, in your case, it was a different situation where your uh, current or at that point, the company was basically trying to ditch uh, the Salesforce offerings because they were not part of their portfolio. The other thing I was going to hone on is scalability in terms of staff. It's quite difficult to scale right now, I think, in case you don't have a heavy budget behind you so you can overpay in a way. So you have that that challenge, I guess, four years ago is more difficult. So I would really want to get an insight from you in terms of what was your strategy around that? Did you, did you go on the route of recruitment agencies? Did you get some of the colleagues that you previously worked with? I think... In this space, resourcing is always a challenge, and, and certainly in the last few years, there, there's been a, there's just been a chain of people moving from organisation to organisation, really, which has fueled pay increases, which means you know partners are just effectively borrowing talent from another partner in order to resource their own projects. It just creates a circle, so that just also creates a shortage. And I recognised that when I when I started the company and thinking about how can I effectively resource particularly this very large project, as well as some of the other projects that they might potentially kick off. And for me, it was really about trying to look at things flexibly and potentially innovatively so that I didn't get myself into the trap of just hiring people that might stay for three months, four months and decide they wanted to be paid more money and they'd move on to somebody else. I didn't want to fuel that cycle. I think that that was clear. But a number of things came out of that. Yes, I leveraged my existing network because I've worked with a a lot of people. So you reach out to people to see if anybody is looking for a change, they want to do some, some additional work. I reached out to recruitment agencies. And I also reached out to outsourcing companies as well because... The pharmacy company made it very clear in the early stages of the project that, or the discussions for the project, this is before we signed on the dotted line, that they wanted to make sure that we as an organization could scale to meet their needs. And so whilst, you know, in the early days of the project, it was just a handful of people. There was, you know, had an architect, a couple of business analysts um, working on it. But once we got into full-blown development, we'd require, you know, obviously the developers, the QA and, and, and everything else that, and, and PM that goes with that. And I was open with them in terms of where I was. They knew I just started the company. But for them, they had, because of various reasons which I won't go into, they had some budget constraints and they asked me to use an outsourcing company. So I selected, I looked around, did a survey of, of the market to see who was out there, where they were geographically located, what kinds of skills they had, so on and so forth. And then I selected a couple of companies, which I then had to get approved by this potential client to say, look, you've asked me to look at this as a way of reducing the costs and as a way of finding scalable resources. Are you okay with working with either one of these companies? This, this is my shortlist. So they, they did some due diligence. They approved one of those companies. And so we then signed an agreement between Coacto and that organization 
which then gave us access to um, the project managers, analysts, developers, you know, QA, test engineers, uh, and, and architects, and a variety of people that could then resource this project. But you know, they were offshore. And you know, I think one of the challenges for using um, outsource uh, organizations is making sure that you adequately resource onshore or you have some nearshore resources that, that, that can come in and collaborate with the organization because there's no substitute. When we were talking about remote working earlier, there's no substitute for actually sitting down in front of people. Now, I know that's a real challenge right now. And the industry as a whole has, has, has taken the approach of, particularly with events, there's going to be no face-to-face for a while. And I, and I accept that. And I think that's, that, that's the right choice. But that, that presents some challenges. And for us, it, present, it didn't present ch- those kinds of challenges at the time, but it did present some other challenges in that we couldn't just fly over 15 people from the outsource company and put them on the client's site. And actually, they didn't want that. A, they didn't have the space. They didn't want the responsibility of, of having those people on site delivering the project. They wanted the coordination and management to be done through us. So I set up an onshore structure which had, I was overseeing the project. I mean, I, I wore a number of hats in that project, from, from BA to PM to architect to, to you know, engagement manager and for a whole variety of things. But I had made it clear to them that I wanted to have distinct roles and responsibilities in the project that would enable me to deliver that. So we got a project manager, which um, I hired in from another Salesforce consultancy. I hired in an architect from another consultancy, and I had a couple of resources um, internally at that stage that I could use, including myself. So that formed the core onshore team. And we defined the roles and responsibilities that enabled us to deliver and liaise with the client locally, but to manage the bulk of the delivery using the offshore resources. So the offshore resources did engage with the client, but everything was done through that, that, that team structure that, that we set up. And that really gave me, I guess, a framework for how I could potentially scale and grow, grow the business uh, moving forward. I'm in discussions with a couple of companies at the moment for some significant projects. And if I win those, those projects, if I need five analysts tomorrow, it's going to take me three months, six months maybe to hire five analysts. And I know, in fact, there's a very large financial services company locally that has been trying to hire um, a team of people since the beginning of the year. And it's taken them until this point to complete the hiring of that team but they wanted a lot of permanent people they've only managed to get a set of permanent people but largely freelancers and contractors who want that flexibility but they've also interested and engaged with an offshore organization uh, that has around 70 or 80 people engaged this is a very very large project so there are lots of challenges in trying to get that that resourcing structure right so for me i think you know, moving forward and uh, as we've done in a number of projects it's a mix of using uk-based resources either those that you know, work for Coacto, and we have a number of those. It's about you know, being able to flex and use other resources that, that exist in the UK. And where we need to scale quickly, there are many outsource organisations that can provide those resources, usually at a fairly short notice and reasonably competitive rates that take away some or mitigate some of the risk of having that offshore relationship because lots of people have had challenging experiences with offshore companies you know except that I've, I've had quite a bit of experience working with that in the past and so you just need to put the right kind of structures in place and and, and make sure you've got you know, the the right team structure the right process the right monitoring structure and the right checks and balances and kpis in place in order to make that a success so yeah. that's probably rather a long answer to your question but, but i think it's an interesting one because we're still very challenged in the Salesforce space with, with resourcing. And, and one of the other things I decided to do was to try to bring in new people into the ecosystem. So, you know, 
you know, the, the, the people I've hired over the last sort of 18 months or so have all been new to the ecosystem. I hired somebody that had done a lot in managed services, was a project manager, understood IT, architecture and infrastructure really well. Very bright guy, had no Salesforce expertise, but he had a lot of experience. He had a lot of common sense and he had the right attitude. And so I brought him in, you know, he got um, his admin certification a few months ago and he's absolutely flying with the opportunity that we've been able you know, to give give to him. You know, my marketing person, I hired a new marketing person just a few weeks ago, which was interesting during lockdown, trying to do all of that remotely. But they have no you know, experience of working in a Salesforce space. But I find bringing people in enables you to bring in new blood, new ideas, fresh thinking, which we can then integrate into the ecosystem as a way of helping that to grow organically and then to have some fresh approaches, deal with these challenges in a different way. So I think there's, there's a lot of issues you know, with, with resourcing that you can face when growing a consultancy, but I think you just have to step back and, and look at where you're going to get those resources from, what your hiring policy is going to be, what's important to you when you're choosing who to hire. Are you hiring for experience or are you hiring for certifications and, and you know, a whole bunch of things in between? It's, it's, yeah. it's definitely a challenge. If you could shed probably some advice on things to look out for or look for whenever choosing an outsourcing organization, probably an offshore organization, because I have heard that it's quite common. And even the bigger platinum consulting companies here in the UK, they have an offshore base where they push the actual development. So they may have developers in other, other countries. And they keep the consultants, the BAs on premise. I was probably quite fortunate in that, you know, prior to um, my experience with Salesforce, I'd had some experience of working with some offshore organizations. So one of the companies I worked for previously, an American software company, and they decided to um, outsource their development. Uh, this was years and years ago to Bulgaria. They found um, a great little company that had lots of very smart people. And as part of my role, because I was geographically closer to Bulgaria than the folks in the States, I, I took on the responsibility of managing that relationship and working with the development managers who were based out on the West Coast to almost provide a channel and a liaison. So I got some very early experience of, of how you know, to set up the right kind of structures, the right kind of procedures and processes to manage an effective um, offshore uh, development, which for many people they don't have. And, and this is a new new thing for, for, for many people. It's about you know, getting the right kind of skills because there's a shortage. It's also about mitigating risk of overruns and costs and, and, and so on and providing the ability to scale. So I think you know, the, the kind of advice I would have, you know, firstly, is choose very carefully. Don't rush into an engagement with somebody because they are offering to do free development services on a regular basis for you. And I, I probably get contacted by five or six organizations every week asking me to outsource my Salesforce development to them. And I, I respond to every one of them. I file them. But I think it's really about making the right kind of choices, you know, understanding what it is you want from that organization and understanding how that's going to work from a project and a delivery perspective. So for us, one of the things we defined very early on in the organization was we defined a process that we work to when undertaking any project, big or small. And that process provides a framework that we can use to share with customers to explain how we're going to carry out the project. But for, for the pharmacy organization, for example, it enabled us to engage with that offshore organization to say, this is our process. These are the things that we do at each stage. There's five key stages of that process. And these are things we do at each of these five stages. And in that document, these are the things that we're expecting you to do. And so there's a clear understanding of what that engagement model is. 
and what the expectations are. So I think if you set the right kind of expectations early, then you stand a much greater chance of working with an organization like that that effectively. And again, you know, I was lucky to leverage that historical experience I had with, with, with the Bulgarian team. But I was also, you know, lucky to leverage experience with, with an organization where I worked with, with another offshore team and it was super, super challenging. You know, my, my suspicions are that the people that were supposedly certified that had all this experience didn't have all of this experience. You know, the language was a barrier. Communication was a barrier. And you know, often you'd say, you know, we provide some user stories and say, you know, these are the user stories, you know, go through the user stories, understand the user stories, come back with any questions in terms of any gaps in your understanding, and then we'll outline and get the clarification we need and we'll then design the solution. And often those folks just say, yeah, yeah, I get that, I understand that. And then they go straight away and implement it, but they'd implement something that was different to what was in the requirements. So there wasn't that kind of understanding. So also with that experience, I made sure that we built in checks and balances in the process to make sure that we engaged with them regularly enough so that um, we could build that understanding. Because in some cultures, and I've traveled and, and worked all over Europe, I've worked in the States, we may speak the same language sometimes, even in the US, but there is definitely often a communication disconnect just from the words that we use and how we string them together. And so if you're dealing with somebody that's coming uh, from a country where English isn't their native language, that makes it more challenging. So it, coming back to sort of that, that process framework, we put this process framework in place and then we put mechanisms in place to have all the checks and balances to make sure that the deliverables that were required at all of those stages had the appropriate checks and balances. And so that might be clarifying the requirements, having an analysis meeting to make sure that we all understand it, having a, a solution architecture meeting to go through you know, the, the, the overall solution so that we've got something mapped out on both sides, onshore and offshore. And then we have regular meetings to make sure that as we proceed through the implementation, we get those, those sprint, regular sprint reviews, you know, internal sprint reviews, not customer sprint reviews, to make sure that everything is in place and as expected. And yes, things go off piste occasionally, but I think largely with the right kind of control and the right kind of project management, um, you can keep things on, on, on track. And we've, you know, you know, where we've used those offshore services, it's, it's worked, worked very well for us. Uh, but I think if I had to give, you know, give some advice, I'd say have a process, make sure you have the right kind of deliverables in place, you set the right kind of expectations, you recognise that whilst some people may speak English, they may not always understand um, English. Make sure you have a project manager on both sides. And make sure you have testing on both sides. So whilst the offshore organization may do the testing, you'd better make sure that you do the testing back onshore as well um, so that you've got two levels of validation. Because one of the things I found with that company, uh, this was pre-Salesforce, that didn't work out very well, was they say they tested it. We pass it back to the customer, assuming that everything had been tested. It probably had been tested, but it didn't meet the requirements. And so you then create a disconnect with the customer. You start to lose faith, and they start to lose faith and integrity in you. And of course, once that starts to happen, it's very much harder to win it back. It's better to keep it at a really strong uh, level of engagement. So I applied all of those things, really. So, so those would be my, 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 my takeaways. And you know, if I had to pick one of those things out, I think the most important would be a project manager on both sides. You need to have a project manager on both sides that's liaising with the local team, um, that's liaising with the onshore team and the two project managers come together to engage and make sure that everything is aligned to everybody's expectations. Um, interview your outsourcers. You know, find, not only check their certifications, maybe take some references, maybe get them to run a pilot project. Or if you haven't got the, the time and energy to run a pilot project, 
create a set of requirements and then then give it to them and expect them saying the following day to come back and describe the solution architecture to how would you design and implement the solution to meet those requirements test them out they can be very very effective but it does require probably much closer management than you would if you were just running a project entirely onshore where everybody's all in the same room you've done something similar in the past where you took a business to a few million pounds worth of revenue or value. Uh, what would be you know, some of the key points for someone to take a one-man band or two or three people that they deliver a few projects here and there and take it to potentially 10 or 15 or 20 people? What would be some of the things that they should implement within their organizations to, to help them to get to those numbers? Firstly, I would say that a consultancy and growing a consultancy is not for everybody. I mean, there are, there are some people that work best as individuals you know, on a freelance and a contract basis uh, as part of an existing team. Because growing a consultancy requires a large number of skill sets that I think, with respect to everybody working in this space, not everybody has. A solution architect may not have the commercial business skills required in order to put the business infrastructure and the company infrastructure in place and then to grow that infrastructure. And it may not be something that they want to do. I mean, there's, there's a great book that I often buy and, and, and give to people called The E-Myth and by Michael Gerber. And this, that book is really about the entrepreneurial myth. And, and I think it's important just, just to, to touch on this, given the, the nature of your question. And in essence, you know, the, the, the book is about somebody that loves baking. And so they love baking so much and everybody around them says, oh, you're a great baker. You know, you make the most amazing pies, the most amazing cakes. And I think you should do more of that. And they think, oh, great. Yeah, yeah I do love baking. I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. And the book takes you through the journey of that person deciding then to set the business to become a baker. But what they end up doing is spending all of their time doing things that they don't enjoy and don't have the skill set in instead of doing the things they do enjoy. So that can be a challenge with setting up uh, an organization as well, because you can find yourself involved with one minute you're running payroll, the next minute you're looking at a marketing strategy, the next minute you are signing off a VAT return, you know, the, the next minute you're looking at um, the criteria for, for hiring you know, your next BA and you're moving from one thing to another to another. And that doesn't suit, that doesn't suit everybody. So it's really about understanding if you want to do that and if you think you have the right skills to do that. And then you know, once you start to, you know, to grow the business, recognizing that you can't be the expert in everything, because often people from a technical background like ourselves we have technical expertise in some niche areas, but that doesn't mean you're experts in those other areas. For people that are probably technically focused, I think they want to start a consultancy, recognize that you know, at some point you might need to have salespeople. Now, technical and salespeople don't always get on for, for a number of reasons. And I see this in many organizations that we go into where they want a sales cloud system implemented and, and uh, the operations people don't like salespeople. The salespeople don't like the operations people. The management are frustrated. And to some extent, when you go into the workshops, you've almost got to try and bring all of those people together and unify those people into a common and a shared understanding that then enables you to put a system in place that's going to help all of them. And so you have to do those kind of things in a business as well. You've then got to recognize that if you want to grow, you've got to have a marketing function in your business. You've got to have an operations function in your business. You've got to have a finance function in your business. And all of those things are vital components to a successful and uh, growing consultancy. And, and anybody thinking of doing that, go and read The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It's a very short book, very easy to read. 
but it's got some absolute diamond advice in there for anybody that wants to go out and, and set up their own business and build their own business. Paul, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story and also a few layers of advice. In case people want to engage with you, in case they want to follow up what, what you're doing, what are the best places for people to keep in touch? You can go to our website, uh, coacto, that's d-o-a-c-t-o.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the SFDC Consultant Podcast. Be sure to visit sfdcconsultant.com to access the show notes and discover additional content. If you enjoyed the podcast, it would be amazing if you could subscribe, give us a review and share it with your peers. Until next time, take care.